heavenly riches in the heavenly realm that's just absolutely breathtaking and beyond comparison uh, and became poor. You added humanity to you. And you did so because you love sinners. You love messed up people. You love the unhealthy. So Jesus, we, we ask that we would become a church that loves sinners and a church that loves the messy and a church that doesn't just do evangelism but is evangelistic, that doesn't just do missions but is missional. Lord, you are that kind of God. So we want to be that kind of people. And we know that your gospel makes us that kind of people. Uh, your gospel changes us inside and out and restructures us and reorganizes us in such a way, Lord, that we, we see ourselves, we see one another, we see uh, the unchurched, we see the world, we handle our lives differently. And that is now we handle them in light of the grace of God and the freedom and the wonder of what you've accomplished. And so, Lord, may we be... Um, May we be used by you to participate in what you're doing here in Waco. Uh, the mile around the church, so to speak, where 2,000 homes are coming in, would you open the door for the gospel there? Would you stretch it to the rest of the city, uh, possibly provide a downtown campus for a hearing of the gospel? Uh, and other places, would you make a Redeemer an anchor church here in Waco with the resources of people and the resources financially to be a movement of the gospel, Lord, that brings the gospel to the city and brings the gospel to the world. And we ask for that, Lord, and we ask that you would uh, stretch us in terms of seeing how you have already sent out from us and from our midst uh, friends, dear friends that are now preaching the gospel, expanding and advancing the kingdom, whether it's in temple in Eugene, Oregon, in Edmond, Oklahoma, in Colleen, in China, in North Korea, Lord, in Utah, in California, in Dallas, and Lord, the endless, countless students that have come through here have gone on to believe the gospel, build their lives around the gospel, have a gospel life in marriage, in raising families, and being good churchmen and churchwomen all over the world. And so, Lord, would you continue to do that? And we want to pray even silently now uh, for missionaries we know, for those who are planning churches that are our friends, for uh, those who are laboring full-time to bring the gospel to Waco and around the world. So, Lord, we want to pray and thank you for those people. And we want to ask that you would encourage them. And we want to ask that you allow us to also participate in what you're doing. And, Lord, we want to pray for Molly. We want to pray that you would comfort her. Pray for her family. 
that you would draw near, that they would call upon you in their time of need. We thank you for Julian and the Thompsons uh, for being hospitable. And I pray that you would uh, minister deeply and personally to that child through them. And Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so are you ready for Romans 8? We are turning out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. I am. And here's how we're going to begin. We're going to begin with that stellar, unparalleled theologian, Jean-Paul Sartre. Y'all know who he is? A famous existential philosopher. He died in 1980, so just to kind of give you an idea of where to place him, as I told folks earlier, I said, you know, when I hear these great minds or these great significant people in church history, I tend to think that it's ancient stuff, like 15, 16, 17, 1800s. Uh, so this is a guy that was around until 1980, so this is pretty close to home. Now, existentialism, according to Sartre, is, quote, existence precedes essence. Got it? Okay, good. Now, here's, here's Hatton's existentialism for dummies. Are you ready? Experience precedes reality. What that is saying is that the starting point for pursuing reality is experience. This means that the starting point for pursuing reality is not reason, which Christianity says, or revelation, which Christianity says. God acts, God works, God breaks in in history. That's reality. It's the story of the life and death of Jesus, that that is ultimate reality and his breaking in, God working and God acting and God accomplishing in history unleashes and releases truth, reality, the story of the world, the story of your life, okay? So that's, that's Christianity. This means the starting point for ultimate reality, if it's, re, if it's experience, it's not reason either particularly like scientific reason or today, you know, internet, right? Because the internet is always true, and the internet gives you the facts. That's reason. And so reason dominated like that as an authority is what was called modernism or the Enlightenment. Experience is called existentialism or postmodernism today. So existentialism sees the starting point for ultimate reality being experience, being what goes on in your internal wiring and sensations and feelings and thoughts and desires and the way that you perceive and interpret and experience life, that defines, that creates reality. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes could almost be called existentialism, which I think that's what we're going to do, by the way. Next time when we're out of Romans, I think I'm going, we're, going into, we're going into existentialism. We're going into the book of Ecclesiastes. But here's really fascinating, though. But it's not existentialism because it is describing experience in life, right? Life is meaningless, but it's in the Bible. So you know what that means? Revelation interprets your experience. Your experience doesn't interpret your experience. That's pretty cool, right? I thought of that. Now, back to Sartre. Sartre, was a, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1964, but he refused it. He said, look, a writer should not allow himself to be turned into an institution. Now, this, this is kind of slightly humorous, though. Though he won the award and he rejected it, he still wanted the award money, the $53,000 that came with it. So his convictions only went so deep, right? But here's the point of bringing Sartre up. Sartre said, hell is being looked at. 
the experience of being looked at can be terribly traumatic. My first year in college, I went to Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I went there for one reason only, and only one reason. I was to play football and wrestle. In that first year, my football career ended and my wrestling career ended through a kind of catastrophic neck injury. I was taken to Hershey Medical Center and they said, you're done, it's over, which is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is why I hate chocolate to this day. <laughs> but guess what I did the next year? Did I return to Gettysburg? No, I transferred to UMass, Amherst. Why did I do that? I'll tell you why. Because deep, deep, deep down in my bones, I didn't want anyone on that campus to look at me as an injured player, an ex-athlete. Being looked at can be terribly traumatic. It can be life-shaping. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Romans 8, verse 1. There is, therefore no, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Brother. It's unfair when you have an accent. Everything just sounds so much better. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the wonder of what these what this one verse contains, and we ask Jesus that you would make it real to our lives, that you, by your word, would release and unleash the wonders, the power, the life, the freedom, the holiness that's packed in this verse, the life, the energy. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we need to get out our map of Romans. So if you have your Bible, you want to get it out and get your device on. Here's what we're going to do. We need to understand where we are and where we're going to really get the significance and the impact of this particular passage. So what was Romans 1 through 4 about? What was the big idea of Romans 1 through 4? Do you remember? We put it into a question. What is the gospel? And how did the Apostle Paul answer that question? He used a big word that is kind of archaic. It's kind of ancient, but it needs to be brought into the modern era because it's loaded with so much. The heart of the gospel, right? What was that word? Justification. What is justification? Remember, justification is a received righteousness from God, not an achieved righteousness by you and me. It's a Jesus righteousness, not a self-righteousness. It's a grace salvation, not a works salvation. It's good news, not good advice. Now we get to Romans 5 through 8. What is that about? What's the big idea of Romans 5 through 8 about? You remember? The difference that justification makes. What kind of difference does the gospel make in our lives? How does the gospel change us? How do you experience the gospel? Five through eight is all of that. So you need to remember that's the context of what we're doing. 
So when we get to Romans 5.1, this is why it begins like this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have. Therefore, since of what I just talked about in Romans 1-4, through 4, I just talked about the, the gravity, the gladness, the massive realities and the mercies of the wonders of justification. Because of what I just talked about, therefore, since we've been justified, here's the difference it makes in your life. Here's the life change that is released upon you. That's how Romans 5.1 started. Now look at Romans 8.1. How does it begin? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. This is phenomenal because I want you to see that we're still in the same place when we're in chapter 8. Romans 8.1 and 5.1 begin the same way. They have the same connector, therefore, which points back to what was previous, which is, again, in light of the wonders of justification, of good news, not good advice. Here are the implications. Here are the applications to use language today. Here's what a gospel life looks like. They have the same content. In Romans 5, 1, it was justification. Therefore, since you have been justified. In 8, 1, it's no condemnation, which is the same thing as justification because the opposite of justification is condemnation. So Romans 5 through 8 is about life change, the life change of the gospel. It's about a gospel life. You with me? Got it? Okay, now, then what's the relationship between Romans 8 and, and Romans 7? I mean, they need a DTR. We need to define this relationship because this is very, very important. How do they relate to each other? Tell me. Some of you are thinking, but Jeff, you did such an incredible job. So persuasive, extraordinarily skilled, and unpacking the wonders of Romans 7. And, and I'm convinced, you convinced me, that it's a believer, not an unbeliever. Okay? Good. That's what you're thinking right now. Now you're thinking, so what's the goal What's the relationship between those two? Is the goal to get out of the defeated Christian state of Romans 7 and into the victorious state of Romans 8? Now, with all that extraordinary skill I have as a Bible exegete and a communicator, here's the deepest answer I can give you. No. The goal is not getting out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. Romans 5 through 8 is about a gospel life, period. Romans 7 is giving you a specific, central, core reality of what the normal Christian life looks like. It looks like struggling with sin. Struggling with sin is heroic life change. It's prosaic holiness. It's massive maturity. Because to not struggle with sin is to be under the dominion of sin. Now please hear me. Romans 7 is not saying everything about the normal Christian life. It's giving you a specific central reality to it. That's why there's Romans 5. It's giving you something else about the gospel life. That's why there's Romans 6, which gives you something else about the gospel life. And now we're in Romans 8, which gives you another angle of the gospel life. They are all 
talking about a gospel life. There's not a progression of moving into more spiritual maturity as you run through those chapters. There's not an issue of going from a a defeated state to a victorious state. The reality is that they are all looking at what the gospel does, and Paul is so captured and captivated by, here's what the gospel does to us. Here's the life change that's released in it. And I want to show you. And he goes through in his best ways of exegeting and using Greek, he unpacks the wonders of it. Are you with me? Okay. So Romans 8 is in the context of a gospel life. So now here's what I'm going to do. Romans 8 is going to introduce us to a different angle of life change, a significant part. It's going to be called a life according to the Spirit. Verse 4. Okay. Now, I have to say something that's going to make everyone mad in here. So just hang on. 99.9% of us do not know what that really means. A life according to the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? I took an advanced Greek grammar class in seminary and he asked me to do that specific assignment. I want you to exegete everywhere that the, we relate to the Holy Spirit because no one knows what the is that means. And I said, oh, okay. And at the end, the bottom line was, at that point in time in my life, I said, I don't know what it means. So here's what a life according to the Spirit is not. It's not a Holy Spirit technique. It's not a Holy Spirit secret that only an elite few discover or access. It's not a secret that some worthy super saint opens the key and unlocks it for himself or herself and an elite few of the Romans 8 crowd that are no longer in the defeated Romans 7 crowd. That's not what it means. It also doesn't mean that it's a work of the Holy Spirit in two stages. Stage one, conversion. You become a Christian. Stage two is victory. You become a victorious Christian. In other words, the Holy Spirit moves from being resident in your life to being president in your life. And then you have the second stage. You usually have a sign or a gift that accompanies that. So you know you got into the second stage. So you know that it took in your life. And it's usually, I told you I'm offensive right now. I'm going to offend everybody. It's usually a gift of, the, of tongues. Or it's a gift of, a special miraculous gift of healing. Do we believe in healing? You bet we believe in healing. It's some sort of miraculous gift that's given. Sometimes it's this power to cast out demons. And then today there's some weird stuff like, you know, there are territorial demons and you learn to name them and get them out of the territory. Do I believe there are demons? You bet I do. Do I believe that we have lightsabers to do that kind of stuff? No. A life according to the Spirit is not a Holy Spirit-induced trance or personality possession where the Holy Spirit just kind of hits you. And all of a sudden, you can't explain it, but you trust and obey God. All of a sudden, you become a loving person. All of a sudden, you become a serving person. And all of a sudden, you have new obedience in your life. And all of a sudden, you get more committed in your life. And all of a sudden, you do more ministry in your life, and you demonstrate more power in your life. Okay, now that I've offended everybody, what is... What is life change according to life in the Spirit? What does it mean? I'm going to give you the answer because the rest of Romans is going to unpack it. The rest of Romans is going to show you the wonder of it. Here's the answer. 
Life according to the Spirit is a gospel life. It's experiencing the gospel. It's continually growing in believing the gospel in bigger, brighter, better ways in your life. It's the gospel going to the unreached, unconverted territories in your life and in your relationships. At one level, everyone believes in the gospel if you're a Christian. At far deeper levels, we do not. And a life in the Spirit is the gospel going into our lives. So, a life according to the gospel and a life according to the Spirit are the same thing. Being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the gospel is the same thing. Romans 5 through 8 is a gospel life. When you get to chapter 8, we haven't entered the realm of weirdness. We've entered the context of the gospel impacting a life by the power of the Spirit. Okay? You with me? I know some of you aren't, and that's okay. Because the gospel allows us to disagree and still be friends. Okay? Notice what Paul puts first in showing us how to live a life according to the Spirit. This is the first thing. Is this what you expect? You're going to hear a treatise. You're going you're to write a volume on the Holy Spirit and the realities of being filled with it and keeping in step with it and a life according to it. And here's the first thing Paul wants you to know that marks you and me if we're filled with the Spirit. Therefore, there's now no condemnation. You are filled with the Spirit. You are walking according to the Spirit when no condemnation seeps into your bone marrow. And that's the first thing Paul wants to say to you on what the normal Christian life is all about in Romans 8. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we talked about him before. He was called the last great Puritan preacher, right? So I know you're thinking, okay, like I did, oh, it's 16, 17, 1800s. No, he died in the 1980s. He was a preacher in England. He spent 13 years preaching through Romans. So if I go a little long, I'm just saying, right? Those sermons were put into print, and they filled 14 volumes. You can go into my study at my home, and it takes up one shelf. 14 volumes. I looked at what he did on Romans 8. Uh, It was about that much, just on verse 1 in a book. The intro was like two chapters. I'm like, okay, 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 where's the verse? Because I had to find the verse because I was studying the verse, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about 8.1. This is one of the greatest statements of the Scripture one of the most important for Christian experience and for the health and well-being of the Christian believer. This is the greatest good news that has ever come into the world. It holds out the greatest possibility for man since the fall. It is the heart and essence and soul of the Christian gospel. Not only that, this is the theme of, the whole, of this whole chapter. He's saying the whole chapter of Romans 8 is verse 1, unpacked. And then he says, in this greatest chapter in the Bible, this is the greatest most significant verse in the chapter. 
he calls it the brightest gem of all and in many senses the most moving then he goes on to say this stunning statement most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse wow most of our troubles are due to not realizing or forgetting not internalizing not experiencing the truth of this verse what kind of troubles is he talking about so if this if this doesn't get real to us verse 1 if it's not seeping into our bones verse 1 what kind of troubles can we expect what kind of troubles would show up in our life that would show that we need the gospel to go in this unreached area drivenness busyness stress exhaustion perfectionism well there's me how about you Paul's author, Who Will Deliver Us? The Present Power of the Death of Christ, writes, Stress is an everyday tragedy that makes many of us become unhappy, resentful people. Family tragedy is often a result of stress. If stress is not relieved in a person, it becomes tinder for an explosion. One way of describing stress, I'm just going to tell you the metaphor, he uses a vice. And on this vice, on this side of the vice, is oughtness. It's law. It's measurement standards. It's calls to perfection, and it's demands that you be so like maybe the Ten Commandments, or like maybe the law of thinness, or body image, or achievement, or success, or hard work, or accomplishment, or parental approval, or being well-liked, or being affirmed in your work and your job with your gifts and your talents. And then on the other side is what you want and what you need, and these two squeeze and squeeze and squeeze stress. goes on to say human beings are held in this vice squeezed there by inexorable opposing forces the vice is so strong because our fear is so great well what are we fearing the fear of the judgment of the ought the law if paul was here he'd say the vice is so strong because of the fear of condemnation from god from others from ourselves, from all the little oughts and laws and rules and measurements and standards and expectations that endlessly gather and endlessly pile up, always there. Your parents' approval. I mean, we can go on and on, right? To be valued at work. Amanda Jenkins writes about her laws in a book called Confessions of a Raging Perfectionist. She says, I begin each day with a list keep the house picked up, limit myself to one Diet Coke, spend special time with each of my kids, work out, pray, avoid sugar, read a chapter in a book about something important, and so on and so forth. And then I determine each day's worth, my worth, she says, by how many of those things I actually did. What kind of troubles? What kind of troubles show up in our life when we don't get verse 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Fear, anxiety, sadness, discouragement, depression. Paul's all again. Depression is a heavy cloud of hopelessness settling over our confidence and hope. It is often brought on by an event that touches a hopeless part of us. We might say the hopeless person that leads 
and lives in each side of us. He says that there's a hopeless person that sits inside of you, and it's just an event. It's just a situation. It's just a conversation, and it lets out the kraken. He goes on to say, we suddenly can be depleted of confidence by the conviction that we can never attain the affirmation that seems so necessary for us to live and breathe and have our being. When I find myself, he's a pastor, he's a theologian, he's a writer, he's an elderly man, he's mentored and written hundreds of folks, and he struggled with depression and struggled with, struggles, present tense. He says, when I struggle, when I become depressed, it's usually through the gateway of someone else's judgment as I perceive it. According to this judgment, Paul would say condemnation, same word, I feel my own weakness so heavily that it seems to express the whole truth about my life. It becomes all I believe about myself. In the presence of condemnation, we wilt to nothing, end quote. What kind of troubles are due to us not realizing, not entering into, not experiencing, not having a life according to the spirit of no condemnation. Last one, lack of confidence and joy in your relationships. Lack of confidence and joy in your relationship with God. God is no longer close God becomes far, and God gets morphed into something that he's not. And sometimes when I hear, and I hear myself, I I tell my wife sometimes, like, God's doing this to me, or I think God's this, and she's like, gosh, I just don't think that's the God of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Someone says, you know, I I think this, Christianity's this, and I don't believe in this. And I say, I don't either, and I'm a pastor. So it keeps us from reading the Bible. It keeps us from praying. It keeps us from being used by God. Why? Because we really don't believe verse 1. It's not felt. It's not changing the way we think about ourselves, our relationship with God, the way we interact with other people. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So why is this the case, though? What kind of troubles we just looked at? Well, why are these troubles there? Why are these troubles due to our failure to realize there is therefore now no condemnation? Here's Paul's answer. Paul's answer is because being looked at is traumatic. Sartre is right. Hell is being looked at. Find the word condemnation. It's a legal term. Find it in your Bible. Circle it, box it, whatever you want to do. The image here is a trial or a courtroom. The image is being looked at. The image is being evaluated. The image is being assessed. The image is being analyzed. The image is being scrutinized. The image is being weighed, measured. The image is All eyes are on you. All eyes on you to determine the ultimate verdict. To determine the ultimate verdict of whether you're good enough. Are you a good enough father? Are you a good enough wife? Are you a good enough housekeeper? cook, 
athlete, artist, writer? Are you good enough in your parents' eyes? Are you good enough in your spouse's eyes? Are you a good enough son and daughter? Are you a good enough architect? Are you a good enough coach? Are you a good enough researcher? Are you a good enough professor? Are you a good enough student? Are you good enough? All of life gets broken down to moments of being on trial. Every conversation, analyzed, evaluated, every endeavor, every work, every gift, every talent, every moment of the day from sunrise to sunset, we are on trial. Am I good enough? Am I good enough to not be condemned? So I want you to listen to the wonder what Paul is saying here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. The verdict is in. The trial is over. No more condemnation now. There is only you're wanted, you're welcomed, you're loved, you're accepted, you're okay now. That's the world, the life, the freedom of verse 1. You are fully looked at. All eyes are on you, and you're good enough. You're good enough. Jesus was fully looked at, scrutinized, analyzed, examined for you. Jesus went on trial for you. Jesus was good enough for you. I want you to look at the words again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, well, who are those? Because Jesus experienced the ultimate verdict of condemnation. Because he experienced that ultimate verdict. And it wasn't just a sentence. It was a reality of unleashing the powers of death and decreation that accompany the sentence. It's the declaration of it, and it's the exercise of it. It's a condemnation of your very being so that there's nothing left. And Jesus experienced condemnation, ultimate condemnation, so that you don't. So now there's no condemnation with God. There's no condemnation with others. There's no condemnation with yourself. There's no condemnation from being thin when you eat the gallon of ice cream. You don't have to atone for it by running 10 miles that night. All condemnation was experienced and extinguished at the cross forever. There is now no condemnation. So all eyes on Jesus, right? All eyes on Jesus, the trial is over. So when you find yourself on trial, then how do you know when you're on trial? Are you stressed? 
I mean, that's where we got to become more self-aware of our emotions. Guess we got to feel more than one feeling every once in a while, guys. Right? You do have more than one feeling that can be hurt. So we got to pay attention to the stress in our life, the exhaustion in our life, the busyness in our life, the perfectionism in our life, the driving, the performing, the pleasing, the perfecting. And that's when you know you're on trial. You are striving with all your might to get the ultimate verdict of being good enough. So hear me. The trial's over. You are good enough. No condemnation. And so the trick that we're going to find out in the rest of chapters 8 is where your mind goes when that happens. You've got to pry your eyes or your mind off yourself. And all eyes on Jesus to experience the wonder of verse 1. So you can know this. When you are feeling stressed and you are, there is stress to life, but I mean the kind that's, that's eating your lunch that makes you not sleep, that you roll it around in your head 24 hours a day, right? That kind of stress. The dread of what you got to do tomorrow or the next day or the conversation or the interaction with the person, that kind of stress. You can know you're on trial. Take your eyes off yourself. All eyes on Jesus. It's a counterfeit trial. It's not a real one. So why do you live it? Why do I live in it? All eyes in Jesus, you are completely wanted, you are completely loved, you are completely accepted. You are enough in Christ. So life's moments. How does this change your life? Think about how this changes your life. Now all of life's moments and endeavors and works and conversations and relationships, everything that totals your life from sunup to sundown is no longer a trial. It's now a gift of grace. It's now something to be lived and enjoyed. It's something to be free, joyful confidence. It's something now that you're no longer, it's kind of like if you, were, if you were playing for an NFL team and you're in, the pre, you're in the pregame stuff where you're trying out for the team. Tryouts are being on trial. Jesus says you're on the team. So let's go play. You got to practice, you got to work on that, you bet, because chapter 7 says you struggle with sin, so that's going to be true. But you're free to struggle. You're free to be where you are and who you are. You're free to pay, pray your pain. You're free now to work through things that are difficult and hard in your life. You're free to face it because you're not on trial. You now can look at your gifts and they don't have to justify your existence. You don't have to prove yourself with them. You now can enjoy them. Performance anxieties are gone. You just perform. Because you're called to, because you're gifted to, because you love it. And then you can appreciate it in other people. Instead of getting jealous and envious, you sit there and go, gosh, I can't believe somebody can do that. That's incredible. I see that every Sunday. On direct TV, with all the football I watch. How did he make that? Right? For you, it might be art. For you, it might be music. How? Right? All right. That's all I wanted to say.
Let's pray.